0: Before we kick off today's episode with Kayla, we want to say that it's brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Movie, each and every film is hand selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere.
1: Hell yeah, Slim, you know I'm a movie sub, but did you know they also have a print only magazine called Notebook? It's published biannually and it's devoted to the art and the culture of cinema, and it's all from movie. Issue one features an in depth conversation between acclaimed Drive My Car director Rasuke Hamaguchi and artist Yoshitomo Nara, a chorus of personal reflections and stories shared by exiled Afghan filmmakers. Hand decorated 16 millimeter film cans and unique carte blanche contributions by Christopher Doyle and Jessica Bescher. I
0: want my hands on this friggin' magazine right now.
1: Mitchell. Did you hear all of that? I did hear, I'm sitting right here in the <laughs> studio hearing you go Christopher off. Christopher Doyle.
0: He shot the One
1: Car Y movies.
0: Shipping is free. Mitchell and subscriptions are now open for issues two and three and you can sub to the magazine for 40 bucks a year you can find out more at movie.com slash magazine icom and you can try movie free for 90 days at movie.com slash letterboxd that's MUBI.com slash letterboxed for three months of great cinema for free and now on with the show you guys got a lot of laws right let me tell you something. I only got one law. A kid who tells on another kid
2: is a dead kid. Well, that's a good rule, kid. That's right. It'll serve you well in jail someday. Damn straight.
0: Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show, the podcast about movies people love watching from Letterboxd, the social network for people who love watching movies. I'm Slim, they're Mitchell, and each week we are joined by a special guest who tells us their four favorite films. We feverishly devour them with our eyeballs. And then we have them on to talk about what makes those four films such personal touchstones.
1: Letterboxd members may recognize the voice of this week's guest, Kayla Janice, from her in-depth conversation she had for us last year with director Ben Wheatley. She's a filmmaker herself, having directed last year's mammoth, majorly comprehensive Folklore documentary, Woodlands Darkened Days Bewitched, A History of Folklore*, which is currently sitting at a whopping 4.0 average rating on Letterboxd. Wow. If that's not enough, she is a celebrated author, joining us alongside the release of the expanded 10th anniversary edition of her book, House of Psychotic Women. And of course, we will hear about her four favorite films, which are Over the Edge, Melody, cockfighter and the last wave kayla thank you so much for joining us first question how the hell do you find the time to fit all of this stuff in
2: oh well i mean i actually it's funny you say that i just i often feel like i'm not productive enough compared to (laughs) many uh, many of my colleagues but, but honestly, it's like a lot of the projects I work on take several years to do. And so then sometimes they all kind of come out at once, like they all get finished at once. So then it just seems like I did all this stuff for a <laughs> short time. But actually, they've usually been in the works for like quite a few years. Um, so House of Psychotic Women, the new edition and the folk horror film I was kind of working on concurrently. Also with another book that I edited um, about the history of the Alamo Draft Houses Weird Wednesday series, which. Uh, of this book called Mm Warped and Faded and it tells kind of like the beginning of that series and then the birth of the American genre film archive which kind of grew out of it and so I was kind of doing all those things at once um but for many years you know and so then they all kind of got finished at once and then people were just like oh my god you're doing so much but it's like like nobody heard of me for like three years before that you know because I was just (laughs) working on stuff.
0: I love the idea that Kayla's just like us, worried that you're not doing enough, and yet literally all this stuff is out and it looks like you could be the busiest person on the planet, and yet that question still remains after all that work.
2: Yeah.
0: I think we should jump right in. I think we talked about starting with Over the Edge, 1979, Jonathan Kaplan. This is a three point eight average on Letterbox. This was a first time watch for me. Oh, really? Yeah, very. All, all of these were first time watches for me. Believe it or not, the, of your four wow. faves. And pre show, Mitchell and I had a back and forth discussing the synopsis for this movie and actually several others of your four faves, kind of almost like giving away too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you like read it. Legit before you watch it, you kind of like are a little bit spoiled with spoilers. Right. But a group of bored teenagers rebel against authority in the community of New Granada. So, this was a first time watch for me. Mitchell, what about you? Was this a first one for you for this discussion?
1: Yeah, this. So, this one has been on my watch list for a long time. I got the uh, Arrow released a Blu ray of it a few years back that I picked up. And I, that synopsis that you just read, I changed it yesterday because the original synopsis on Letterboxd, there's a big event that happens about halfway through this movie that threw me for a total loop. It was in just right in the synopsis on Letterboxd, and I'm so glad that I didn't read that until after watching the movie. <laughs> but yeah, this I am a huge fan of River's Edge is one of my all-time favorite movies, which is directed by Tim Hunter, who co-wrote Over the Edge, and they fit very much in the same sort of genre, the same milieu of these like youth and revolt kind of movies yeah. that are coming of age movies, but with a really darker, grittier edge. And I I mean, I was blown five, this Over the Edge five stars for me immediately. This is now one of my favorite movies of all time. So Kayla, I'm so grateful for you to give me the motivation to finally watch it. But I want to hear from you. What's your kind of, what's your history? When did you first see Over the Edge?
2: Well, I've saw, I first saw Over the Edge when I was a teenager and it was because I used to obsessively watch the uh the movie Suburbia the Penelope Spirits movie Suburbia and it always said on the VHS box like the best teens and revolt movies since Over the Edge so that was like how <laughs> I heard of Over the Edge was from the video box of of Suburbia and so I immediately started looking for it um but it took me like about three years I think from when I had first heard of it to when I finally got to see it because um it just wasn't easy to find. This was like the late eighties, you know, when I ended up renting it probably from movie village in Winnipeg, Manitoba, <laughs> but it was, I mean, I just loved it because it's right. It's right at that cusp, you know, it's like 79, 80, where it's like the eighties the haven't really started yet, but the seventies are kind of like winding down and turning into something else. And it's kind of like this weird dead zone, like 1979, 1980, where, where kids aren't really sure where they fit, you know? And, um, and so I just loved that it was, you know, and it's interesting, you you know, you compare it to River's Edge, because obviously it's the same uh, writer, but I find the kids in River's Edge much more alienated, like much more, like they, they already are like beyond, like not giving a shit yeah. about anything, you know? Um, whereas the kids in Over the Edge, you get a chance, you get the sense that, there could be a totally different road for these kids if external factors had not, uh, happened. Like basically all the parents moved to this newly developing suburb, um, because, you know, they want to get out of the city, they want to have a better quality of life or whatever, but they like completely ignore the fact that a gigantic percentage of the population is under 15 years old. And there's like nothing for the kids to do in the town. Um, and every time that, you know, the city developers are promising like, oh, there's going to be a roller rink or there's going to be a mall or whatever, like it, it ends up getting thwarted by like an industrial park of some sort that somebody wants to build there. <laughs> you know, so it's like all the kids, like all the plans of stuff for them to do is just not, they're, they are not being prioritized in this community, even though they're actually a major part of the population. Um, and so inevitably, um, you know, they start committing, I mean, they're not even committing that much petty crime. It's just sort of like, you know, hanging around, doing drugs, (laughs) drinking underage, you know, like some of these kids are like the most adorable kids ever. You know, there's like Johnny, the kid who doesn't talk, you know, and just like, he's like 12, supposed to be 12 or something like that. Like these kids are so young and they're like on acid and stuff. (laughs) And uh, yeah, like, I just love them because they're not totally there's, there's still some naivete in them, you know, like some innocence mm-hmm. in them compared to the kids in like river's edge. Yeah. But I just, it was a great cast. Obviously it's like, many of the kids are, were new to acting, including like Matt Dillon it's built as Matt Dillon's yeah. first movie. So, and I just remember like the scene where, you know, it's like one of the kids decides he's having a party everybody goes around the playground and they're just like, Hey, there's a party, there's a party, let's go, you know? And they walk in the door of the party and it's like Van Halen's um, like version, the cover version of you really got me is playing. And mm-hmm. it's like the way the camera moves through this party as they enter the door, it's like this amazing sequence that I just love. Like, I feel like I could just watch it over and over because when I was a teenager first going to parties, it just captured so much of like how it felt to be like a 14-year-old mm. kid going to a house party, you
0: know? That was that was one of my notes that I had written down was, I mean, you you talked about the kid who thought he was taking speed, but it was yeah. acid. And I was like, my <laughs> God, these kids, like, they are going nuts. And I was trying to think of, like, my youth. Like, I was watching pirated tapes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers when <laughs> I was these kids' age on a VCR, let alone doing acid. And I I saw some letterbox reviews that echo what you had said. Uh, Mandrake Gray left a review in a single word: authentic. So much so that I sat somewhat stunned when the final credits began to roll. I experienced more than just a film; it was the cinematic equivalent of a home movie. And that that era of these kids, and I feel like this is captured in a few of your movies, is. It's, it's a moment in time that I feel like I have no concept of. Mm. Like these kids getting into so much trouble with drugs, with smoking, like doing whatever the F they want. It's, it looks so freeing in a way that when I look at my own son now, I'm like, if I ever see you do something like that, my <laughs> God, you are finished, my friend. <laughs> and it's just, it wowed me mm. seeing it on film and to see your comments and the reviews say that like, this is real. This is how it was yeah. for me, which is crazy to think about for me.
2: It definitely has an authenticity to it that so many teen movies try for and don't quite get, you know and I think a lot of that has to do with um, you know, like some of the actors went on to act more after, but I mean, I don't think they were really seasoned actors before doing the film. Obviously some of the adults were like Ellen Gear, who plays the mom, like Carl's mom, and then Harry Northup, who plays Officer Doberman, who I just love, I love, actually love his character. And I I ended up at a dinner sitting next to him once, like, <laughs> years ago. And uh, and he came in and I just, and he sat next to me and I was like, oh my God. I was like, Officer Doberman. <laughs> on the edge. And he was so stoked, like, that I knew who he was and that I recognized him. And, uh, <laughs> but it was, yeah, I mean, like, even that character who as a teenager, I hated him, you know, like, I just like, like the most like incompetent buffoon of a cop, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but that's such a great performance though of that, you know? So it's like, yeah. even though you hate him, it's like, you're supposed to, you know?
1: I was really impressed with like, I, I'm the same as you Kayla. Like we're of like a little bit of a different generation, but I, I grew up. So I live in like rural Delaware. I grew up in rural, rural Delaware and like movies like river's edge, like this, like suburbia too. They really speak to me. There's a list on Letterboxd by uh, Vanina who calls it bleak and gritty teen films. And they're kind of like the, the adjacent to a movie like Lady Bird or something, which is like a little bit more of, you know, a little bit upper classy kind of suburbia growing up. And these movies are like just... Trying to figure out growing up in this like go nowhere town where like you said, like the kids are just kind of left on their own to just like do whatever I remember getting in like literally knife fights with other kids when I was like 12 years old in the woods. And like that was just normal to us. <laughs> like nobody went home and told our parents about it. It was just like a thing that we just did. There's a scene this, like, abandoned condo. They're just hanging out, and his crush, Corey, with this, like, this gorgeous head of red hair is just dancing around, holding this gun, and pointing it, pointing this gun directly at him, and it creates this, like, beautiful, like, mixture of it's really frightening to watch because you're just watching this kid holding a gun at another kid and it feels like anything could happen. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you're seeing it through his eyes where it's really romantic and you see him kind of fawning over her. And I feel like it really captures, yeah, that authenticity of growing up in that moment where you feel really free. But from the outside perspective, there is kind of this terror and this like, what are these kids doing? And I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the movie is how it gives you the kids' perspective, but you also understand what the adults are kind of going through. The adults are a lot more layered than you would expect them to be because it's not, other than the police officer who is just straight up like a bad guy, like a villain, the parents are really like, you feel their concern for their kids. And it maybe takes them a while to like wake up to the fact that like you can't just like force these kids to be what you want them to be. But they kind of start to understand that what they're doing, leaving them on their own, kind of, and everything. They're not caring for them the way that they should be. Did you feel mm. that, too, that, like, the way that the parents were being portrayed was a lot more interesting than you would maybe expect for a movie like this?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, again, my my opinion on that changed as I got older, because when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, idiot parents, you know. Um, and then as I got older, you know, I could really sense the desperation in the parents, you know, like, the desperation mm. even in, like, Carl's dad, who's, you know, he's trying to make money to support his family. And you can tell he's struggling. You can tell he's, you know, he's struggling and he's actually not sure if they made the right decision to move here or if they kind of created a dead end for themselves financially. Um, And so you, you get a sense of him, like trying to please, you know, these out of town people who are coming to look at property and he's like kissing their ass and stuff like that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and he just wants everything to seem like it's perfect in this town, which of course it's not. And, um, and so, yeah. And then the mom, of course, Ellen here is, is, you know, like she seems like the kind of mom who's like probably, (laughs) probably just drinking a lot during the day because she's (laughs) like so stressed out. I just, I loved all the adult characters. They were great. Like Julia, the T the the girl who runs the rec center, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just that whole scene at the rec center, you know, I mean, it's 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 hilarious, it's touching, it's, you know, like disturbing, it's all of these things, you know, but but I still do feel like there is this weird, you get a real sense of like innocence getting to a point where there's there's a change and you can't go back, you know? It's yeah, kind of yeah. like there is this potential innocence in these kids where if they just had something else to do maybe they wouldn't be drinking and doing drugs so young you know but then obviously there's an incident partway through the film where there's just not going to be any going back from
0: it. one review uh, i wanted to call out maybe before we move on is from jrk after scenes of matt dylan in one a belly shirt and then two a mesh tank top i said what's next a vest with no shirt under it <laughs> guess what happened <laughs> Matt Dillon ageless somehow as a child in this movie. I feel like it's almost like there's reverse CGI aging technology on Matt Dillon in these movies. He just, he's the most Matt Dillon looking person. And I feel like that makes sense somehow when I say it out loud.
1: Let's move on to your next favorite film, which is Melody from 1971, directed by Warris Hussein, written by Alan Parker, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Uh, also with a 3.8 average on Letterboxd, the synopsis. So the synopsis on Letterboxd for this one set, describes it as two youngsters declare to their parents that they want to get married, not sometime in the future, but as soon as possible, which Slim and I were talking is uh, another like interesting synopsis because that doesn't really happen until like three quarters of the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. We've talked before on this show about movies that are described as like, quote unquote, no plot, just vibes. <laughs> and that's usually a description for like genre movies. Um, but melody, when I was watching it, it really felt like a no plot, just vibes kind of movie. It's really these young kids, just kind of existing in like their school life, going about their days, just kind of interacting with each other. And it is a film that uh, we were discussing before we started doing this. is not very seen on Letterbox. It has. Uh, like two thousand watches. Period on Letterbox, which is really rough so actually a really ton would.
2: compared to most movies. That- <laughs> most <laughs> movies I watch have like two hundred views.
0: surprised you would even choose such a mainstream movie for this episode, <laughs> Kayla. <Okay. laughs>
1: but it was—it really was like a delight. It really—I um, was saying before we started that it feels almost like a weird mirror image of Over the Edge, where it's also like about adolescent kind of growing up, like that kind of clash of figuring out, you know, growing up, but in a much like sunnier kind of tone. Mm-hmm. Kayla, what is your what is your history with Melody? How did you first see it? Did you have to get it in some back? Well, it's kind of weird channel on the internet or were you able to see it in much more uh, above board means?
2: Well, I think I first heard about it because I was a fan of Jack Wilde, who's the actor who plays Orange Shaw in the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and weirdly, I had never heard of it. So it was like my friend, I think it was my friend, Brian Connolly, who's one of the authors of that book, Destroy All Movies, The History of Punks on film. Um, I'm pretty sure he may have been the one that t- was like, you love Jack Wilde and you've never seen Melody. And so <laughs> I, I'm I'm positive I must have tracked down a bootleg of it somewhere. Um, but after I quickly decided it was one of my favorite films all the time, I was actually gifted a 16 millimeter film print of it. So wow, um, yeah, so I mean, it's turned completely pink now but um but yeah but i did have it on film and i have projected it on film and stuff like that um but yeah melody was i mean i fell in love with it instantly because uh i don't know if i would say there's no plot just because there's you know it's it's a coming-of-age film it's about this friendship between these two boys who are from different ends of the sort of class divide in the uk you know so like one comes from uh, you know, like uh, a wealthier family. One comes from a, you know, like a family that you know, ornshaw at least considers himself to be poor or less privileged or somehow ashamed or embarrassed of where he lives enough to try to hide it from um, the other character. You know, but and he's also kind of like, a, a, like a latchkey kid in a way, ornshaw where it's like mm. he has to come home and he actually has to cook dinner for his grandpa. You know, so there's no parent. Taking care of him, he's kind of like the parent, you know. And he's, and again, these kids are supposed to be about twelve, even though Jack Wild was like nineteen when they filmed it. (laughs) But he looked, yeah, he he just looked young for a long time, you know. It took he was probably like in his mid twenties or or almost like thirty years old before he actually looked like an adult, you know. And so he he played all these like kid roles like quite late. But so, yeah, Jack and Jack Wild and Mark Lester, who are the leads, uh, Mark Lester plays Daniel and they are, you know, they form this like unlikely friendship because Daniel is like this really shy, proper, polite little kid. And then Ornshaw is just like this mouthy, like sloppy kid. And uh, so they form this like unlikely friendship. Uh, So, again, the kids spend a lot of time like goofing off and trying to get out of their studies and stuff like this. Um, and you've got like one kid, there's one like little kid who smokes cigarettes,
1: like hilarious. <laughs>
2: yes. and, uh, you know, another kid that plays with dynamite, like trying to blow shit up all the time. And, uh, and I mean, honestly, For when I first saw the movie Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie, which I saw way later, Mm. I remember being like furious in the theater when I saw it because I was just like, this is just ripping off Melody. And I and I was thankful that Wes Anderson at least mentioned it in an interview, you know, like he mentioned being influenced by Melody. But I but it did really bother me that like Moonrise Kingdom got this big release and everybody loved it. And then nobody had ever talked about Melody or heard of it or was releasing it or anything when it was very clearly the inspiration for Kingdom, yeah. you know, but yeah, I just love melody because it's, you know, and the soundtrack is a big part of it. I mean, I think the soundtrack may be a big part of why it hasn't been more widely released too, like music, rights. I was about making, to say that because it's like yeah. 60s Bee Gees music, you know? Um, so this is like, obviously for people who only know the Bee Gees from their disco 70s stuff they had an entirely different career in the 60s where they were much more of kind of a baroque pop band and so this is like late 60s bg's music that's used as the soundtrack for melody
0: i was thinking the one movie that i thought of that also maybe was tied up with soundtrack was Times square which i think just got a recent final release on Blu-ray, for yeah, things? I don't
2: think that was tied. That was tied up because of soundtrack. though, Because there was this there was an official soundtrack LP released for that mm. film uh, that was pretty widely released by like because like Robert Stigwood, who pro- was a producer on the film, owned that record label. So it, the music was always kind of like built right into the release of the movie. So there may have been other reasons why it was unavailable for a long time. Um, I don't think that was it though. I know there's an, uh, another one of my favorite movies. Which I mean, I was waffling on like which one to mention, whether I would do like Little Darlings or Over the Edge. Oof,
1: I love Little Darlings.
2: Yeah, because Little Darlings, which also has Matt Dillon. It's also, yep. you know, this exact same year as Over the Edge, but it has my favorite actress, Christy McNichol. Um, but it has it has had music rights issues, you know. So it's been uh, hard to see uh release for little darlings, I think.
0: Does he wear a mesh
1: top? Or uh, just a vest without a shirt. He he wears a lot of he wears a lot of sleeveless sleeveless yeah. tops in it. Yeah. It's it's takes place at like a summer camp where these two young girls make like a pact to lose their virginity by the end of the summer. <laughs> if people haven't seen Little Little Darlings, it's it's a wonderful movie. It's also like Melody, like it is It's really delightful to watch and very comforting to watch, but it's also like deeply, deeply sad. It really like cuts to the core of like growing Mm -hmm. up as a young girl and just like figuring your stuff out and not really having a lot of uh, like support in you figuring yourself out because the girls are getting bullied and pressured by other girls and they don't have really like adults to go to. It's yeah. I mean, we're not here to talk about Little Darlings, but I (laughs) I love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) You could have another
0: hour on Little Darlings. (laughs) But let's talk about House of Psychotic Women. Autobiographical exploration of female neuroses in horror and exploitation films uh, includes anecdotes and memories interweaved with film history, criticism, trivia, and confrontational imagery to create a reflective personal history and examination of female madness, both on screen and off. And I've listened to podcast conversations with you in the past about how You've wanted to go back to this book after 10 years since Mm -hmm. there have been so many new movies that have been released that you feel should be included, but also so many of them have been directed by women. Mm -hmm. So what was that process like for you to kind of have the book out and then you're starting to see this trend of other films that you're like, oh, you know what? I should really be great if we could add that. that, What was that like for you, that process to kind of make the decision that maybe it's time to go back?
2: Well, I mean, I, I definitely started thinking about it probably as early as like 2016 or something, which only would have been like four years after the book came out. But I remember I had started a log where, and I think the very first movie I had put on it was actually, I think Queen of Earth and Always Shine, which, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, interestingly are, are almost identical (laughs) in their (laughs) stories. Um. But both of those films, I I had in a document where I actually wrote capsule reviews for them back when Mm. they came out as a possible addition to House of Psychotic Women if it was ever like released again, you know. Um, So I know I was thinking about it that early, but um, but it was really I would say in the last two years that I I talked to my publisher and just said you know what would you think about doing a new edition for the tenth anniversary. And I think that, uh, you know, he's always up for any opportunity to get new, <laughs> new press or new whatever for the book. So yeah. he's just like, great, you know, anytime, <laughs> anytime I think like, hey, let's make a new cover for the book. He's like, great, you know, because it's like another he can like milk it more. You yeah. uh, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so it was kind of like um, I, I just started obviously noticing a lot more films that could fit this genre or whatever you want to call it, that I, this umbrella that I had created mm. with the book. And um, and a lot of them, and it was interesting because they weren't just coming from horror directors. There were a lot of kind of indie directors who were not typically horror directors that were making these types of films, probably not influenced by horror films as much as influenced by like Robert Altman films or Ingmar Bergman films, like because they did some very important films in this, realm, you know? So like Robert Altman, I think there's two or three of his movies in the book because like images, three women, that cold day in the park, all three of those are in my book. And I think those films were like really influential on a certain uh, generation of, of filmmakers, you know? So it wasn't even necessarily that they were like coming from horror as much as they were coming from, uh, you know, these directors outside of horror that were making these very dark movies that took place like in the female psyche, you know, and, um, and horror just seems to be the place. Like you could argue that many of these movies are not even horror, but I think like horror fans kind of like, they are such an enthusiastic audience that they kind of like adopt the movies (laughs) and they care, they, they take care of them and they are the custodians for these movies in a way that, a lot of non-genre audiences aren't like a lot of non-genre art audiences. They'll just watch kind of whatever and flip from one thing to the next, but the genre people are very loyal to genre and anything they see as like genre adjacent, you know? And so I do feel that these movies have always had a big fan base in horror, even if like Bergman or Altman were not thinking they're making horror films, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so, yeah, so I just noticed there was like so many of these films coming from all different types of filmmakers. Um, And so I just felt like and then I also knew some of the filmmakers had actually been inspired by the book, like they had told me um, not so much that they'd been inspired by like my life story or anything as much as inspired by the canon that the book created, you know, that they realized Mm -hmm. that they really liked those kinds of movies too. And they were like, I want to make a movie that is like that. And so when people started telling me that they were, you know, inspired in some way by the book, I I really got excited about the idea of then including their movie in the book. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like it, to me, it was like this way of like giving back. Yeah. Like anytime some filmmaker said something nice to me about the book, Uh, I was just like, Oh, this is my way. I can kind of give something back to them. I can put their movie in the book. So now they have a new version of the book and their movie is in it, you know? And so it was actually, it was actually kind of nice going back to the book. I was dreading it at first because I thought it would be just psychologically dangerous for me or something, but it ended up being a kind of a comforting process in a way to go back to like my, my people. And, um, And also to then contact filmmakers and stuff, asking them for pictures for the book and having them actually want to give me pictures. (laughs) Unlike unlike the first time when I was pulling teeth to try to get pictures for the book, you know, I I, I was like interrogated by people being like, what is this book about? (laughs) How many are you printing? You know, like it was so hard to, you know, I had to like really pitch the book to people to get them to give me pictures. And this time around, people are like, oh, amazing. How many pictures do you want? You know? So it was, yeah, it was just a much nicer process. And I feel like the book in a way has now has its own family, you know, that's like bigger than me and not just limited to me. It kind of like there's, there's all these people who, who have this appreciation for these types of films and these types of characters, which I can't help but think can only be good for their relationships with mental illness in real life. You know, mm. like in terms of like their empathy for mental illness and
1: stuff. I wanted I wanted to ask you a little bit too about um, the set the Severin Films box set that kind of coincided with the 10th anniversary of House of Psychotic Women rarities collection, which is it's got four films in it: Footprints, uh, Identikit, I Like Bats, and the Other Side of the Underneath. And you mentioned about um, and it's got two different cuts of Footprints, so it's like five discs mm. in total. And you do introductions for all of the films on the discs. And I was going through it, uh, like last week and it's, I mean, the, the work on them, the like restorations on them, they're, they all like absolutely gorgeous. And you were talking there about like horror fans really taking kind of ownership of the genre and having like a passion for the genre, whatever the genre contains, like it can be so broad reaching. And Mm -hmm. one of our coworkers at Letterboxd, Aaron Yap is like, he's who I go to for like underground like horror that like I've never heard of that like people just are obsessed over. And Footprints is one of his favorite movies. He put it on my radar a couple years ago. And I have been like dying to see it, but it was not available anywhere for like years that I could find at least. And so when I saw the announcement of the box set coming out. Like I was so amped to be able to see that movie finally. Like I got it. It was the first one that I watched and it just blew me away. I mean, the cinematography from Vittorio yeah. Storaro is unreal. And I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful movie. And so these four movies are like, they're all ones that aren't, like people who are more casual lovers of horror or cinema don't really know these movies like off the top of their head. They're not the ones that you kind of first go to. And so I think that it's really significant to do the box set around these movies because as like as it says on the tin, rarities collection, it really gets people to dive into movies that they maybe aren't aware of before. And I was curious for you, like what kind of the curatorial process was of selecting these four specific movies to put in this box set.
2: Well, I definitely wanted to try to pick things that weren't out yet domestically or not on Blu-ray or whatever in in North America, because because actually many of the films in the book host of psychotic women are available on other labels, you know? So there was kind of like no point trying to like reissue stuff that somebody just released. And so I kind of went through, I made a list of all the films that, you know, I would be interested in releasing because sometimes there's rare books in the rare movies in the book that I, you know, I still, I don't necessarily love, you know, but So I made a list of the films I really liked that I knew were not available. And then I made kind of like a top 10 list of films. And then we just started inquiring about those 10 films. And we knew that we would only probably have time to get four or five at the most because I sort of had the idea last last minute to do the box set. And so it was like the book was coming out in July so the idea was to have the box set come out with the book, which meant that we only had like three or four months to put the whole box set together from when I first had the idea to when it needed to be <laughs> out. So it's kind of like an impossible timeline for a Blu-ray company because all the films had to be tracked down. We had to find the rights holders. We then had to get the films scanned and new restorations done on most of them. Um, so there was like a lot of work that had to be done in a really short time. So we knew it was going to be limited. So we kind of like put our feelers out to like on like 10 different movies. And then it was like out of those, whatever seemed most feasible in the four months, that's kind of what we focused on. Mm -hmm. There's still other ones that we were in process that didn't come, you know, weren't ready in time that we still are looking into for the future because those conversations had already started, you know? Um, But yeah, so it kind of came down to those four films for the box set, because that's what we could conceivably get finished in time. Although it was pretty mm. hairy with Identikit, to be honest. <laughs> like it was really really down to the wire, um, <laughs> getting that restoration done in time. But-
1: I mean, it turned out great. That That one has an incredible... Elizabeth Taylor's performance To that is, like, fantastic. I, I, again, wasn't aware of the movie. Like, I was a big fan of hers, and it's probably my favorite performance of hers now. Like, she is yeah. just incredible in it um before before we let you go i mean we've got two more favorites that we wanted to make sure that we you know mentioned a bit of so cockfighter 1974 directed by monty hellman uh produced by roger corman this one threw me for a loop i uh was was not i mean i don't think i've seen any of monty hellman's movies before i know slim you had recently seen two lane blacktop because Ty West, right, brought it on The Letterboxd Show. It was one of love. his four favorites. Yeah, I'm doing prayer hands right
2: now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <But> Kayla, <laughs> I mean, tell us a little bit about kind of your your love of cockfighter.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like Anchor Bay, when Anchor Bay still, like when they kind of st- were doing VHS, it was like before DVDs, and they had released VHS tapes of two a, a bunch of Monty Hellman films, actually. They, re- they reissued a lot of this stuff. And so Tulane Blacktop I saw and it had, a, it had a reputation, you know, and so mm-hmm. I knew this was considered like a canonical American 70s film. Um, and so I loved Tulane Blacktop. But then when I saw Cockfighter, I was just like, OK, this is not the movie that people think is Monty Hellman's masterpiece. But to me, it was my favorite mm-hmm. one. And a huge part of it was, I mean, Warren Oates of course, is in Tulane Blacktop. He plays GTO, but in Cockfighter, he takes center stage. He's the main character. He's the person on screen carrying the whole film. And uh, what I loved about the movie was, obviously, it takes place in the milieu of cockfighting in the American South. um, But What really won me over about the film is that he just takes a vow of silence. So at the beginning of the film, it's kind of like two years into his vow of silence. He has decided he's not going to speak ever again until he wins the Cockfighter of the Year Award. And I just (laughs) love that he just decides not to talk and everybody around him has to just like deal with it. And they just have to like communicate with him however he's comfortable communicating. And I was in a way very envious of his decision to not talk anymore. I was just like, wow, I wonder if I could do that. If I could just like stop talking and everyone would just have to like deal with it. I feel like if I just decided to not talk, uh, (laughs) people would just mock me. It would make the podcast a little bit more (laughs) difficult if
0: you, if you weren't talking, Yeah, you you, (laughs) slapping your leg, like Warren trying to communicate with us in numbers.
2: But I, yeah, but so I love that he decided not to talk. I also love like so much about the, um, just personal honor codes you know because obviously there's there's kind of like three different levels of kind of social codes you know in the film there's kind of like the his personal honor codes for himself like him he makes a promise to himself that he has to keep you know and then there's kind of like the cockfighting milieu and all of the weird kind of like um, unspoken rules and honor codes, like that are kind of like Southern honor codes, you know, like around this sport. And then of course there's like the wider world that thinks that cockfighting is completely barbaric and mm-hmm. the, the, and the social codes of like that larger world, you know?
0: It is. Yeah. We should tell the audience, there's lots of cockfighting <laughs> in the movie cockfighter. You might think that maybe it's not going to be, you're like, ah, oh, it's just a name. No, it's not just a name. Yeah. Just real quick, fascinated by the fact that the ending of the movie is the opposite of what happens in the book, which I found fascinating just the you know his reaction in that scene in that yeah. moment. Um also I do I do have to point out one review and then maybe we can move on Adam Robertson. I'm not sure why I keep watching these garbage transfers from Amazon Prime. They look like shit and certainly color my feeling towards the film. Mitchell I think you and I both started to watch this on Amazon <laughs> prime and it's literally someone's like digitized VHS from maybe 40 years ago. Whoever's in charge of the transfers at Amazon should be removed from their position. <laughs> well, I, think
1: <laughs>
2: but it's th- like, I think honestly, like all kinds of bootleggers just put stuff up there. And you yeah. know, because I think we, as Severn, we have to get that stuff removed sometimes Mm. And same with like 2B and stuff. You know, like they just have bootleggers that put stuff up there. Yeah,
0: it's crazy. But the last movie we do want to spotlight before we end today, it's The Last Wave. Peter Weir, Mm -hmm. 1977. Australian lawyer agrees with reluctance to defend a group of Aboriginal people charged with murdering one of their own. He suspects the victim was targeted for violating a tribal taboo, but the defendants deny any association. This one in many reviews that gets called out as cosmic horror, mm-hmm. which I love as like a pitch to get people interested in this movie. It's very subtle yeah. in it. But what, how do you position this movie? Maybe for our audience that have not seen this movie, this is another kind of, you know, off the beaten path movie. How do you position this for folks to give this a shot?
2: I mean, it's I I, I use clips from it in my folk horror movie, you know, so in some some ways you could call it a folk horror type of film. It's also apocalyptic horror Um, and it's, um, I mean, to me, one of the reasons I love it is I honestly feel that it is the most genuinely ominous film I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Every moment of the film is like suffocatingly ominous. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like I find myself, I was just rewatching like my favorite scene from the movie, which is the scene where he goes to see the elder who just asks him, he's like, who are you?
1: Who are you? Who are you? What? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you?
2: Who are you? 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 Are you Mokru? You know, like this amazing scene and it's like, uh, Richard Chamberlain, who plays the lawyer who's you know he's he's basically, you know he's he's a white lawyer who is not even a criminal lawyer, he's like a tax lawyer or something who <laughs> somehow gets assigned to defend these four Aboriginal men who are accused of murdering another Aboriginal man um, in in what has been described as like a pub fight of some sort. you know, there's been like some bar fight. Um and then as he gets drawn into the into the mystery, uh, he starts to believe that it was actually like a tribal execution. Um, but the uh Aborigines that he's defending are denying that uh that they're you know that that there's like uh, tribal uh beliefs involved. And um, but he also starts having all these weird dreams, you know. And so this is a, this it's called cosmic horror for a few things, reasons. One is there's all kinds of weird weather that starts happening at the, as soon as the movie starts. There's like hailstorms, black rain, there's like frogs raining, you know, like, I mean, just yeah. the crazy stuff happening in the film. And then he starts, ha- Richard Chamberlain starts having all these weird dreams about um, like sacred relics and like the, the idea of the Aboriginal dream time, you know, which is kind of like this parallel uh, world where a lot of the, Aboriginal kind of laws and beliefs are kind of formed from experiences in the the dream time. And so he has some sort of like clairvoyant connection to like what's happening. And it's just, um, you know, but obviously the it's it's also very much like a fish out of water type of story, too, because he's the white lawyer who's now like in this world and even just the fact that i find the the movie so ominous and the way that everything is 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 amped up to be to appear so creepy i mean this is definitely filmed from the perspective of the white set this is like the white settler perspective you yeah. know and it's like everything about the aboriginal culture is so unsettling and so disorienting to like this white lawyer and so that clash is a huge part of it you know like these these older 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 beliefs and, you know, this very, like, rational suburban lawyer who is suddenly out of his depth, like, in this world, Um, and, you know, but, of course, it's, like, all, it's all played up um, to create this um, sense of anxiety in the film, and, but I just find, like, the sound design, the visuals, everything. It's like a perfect movie, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's so beautiful. It's so creepy. Um, And it, and it talks about a lot of important things, you know? And so, um, yeah, so I just love The Last Wave. I think I first saw it. uh, I'm positive that I first saw it in a documentary where the document you know so i thought it was i thought of it as a horror film i think right from the beginning because i'm positive i had seen it in a documentary of some sort that was like a horror documentary like Mm -hmm. something like like a terror from terror in the aisles type of thing something like that but i can't remember what it was but it was like it had been contextualized for me in some way where there was like clips positioning it as a horror movie Mm And I ended up being able to see it at the Sitges Film Festival back in like 2000 or 2001. They did this big Australian genre film Mm. retrospective and they played it in one of their old, this is like in Sitges in Spain, which is like a big genre film festival. But they have these old movie theaters there that feel like they're underwater in a way, you know, like they're just very damp feeling and smelling. And so it was kind of like the perfect environment to watch this movie in. Um, but yeah, anyone who's never seen The Last Wave, I mean, it's a Criterion film. It's on Criterion
1: yeah. DVD
2: and Blu-ray, and has been. I mean, Janice Films was a investor in the movie, you know. So, so it's um, it's a caliber of film that is actually considered like a canonical, you mm-hmm. know, amazing film, not just by me. So.
1: Yeah. It's kind of wild. Like I, so I, when I was a teenager, I saw like the Truman show, I saw like at an early age and like loved, I saw Master and Commander, like when it came out in theaters and loved it. And, but it wasn't until like 10 or so years ago that I did like a deep dive kind of into Peter Weir, the director's like filmography and really got into his earlier stuff like this and The Year Living Dangerously, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli. And like, I feel like he, I mean, I don't know if there are like, five directors out there that I would put like above him as like the greatest directors of all time. When you think about like somebody who has such a command over like every element of like mise-en-scene, like every thing that comes into a movie just feels so perfectly calibrated in every single one of his movies. Like you feel it in the water in this movie, like just that element feels like it's dripping over like every single scene. And it's strange that even with a movie like this, *Picnic at Hanging Rock*, is also in the Criterion Collection. Like his early stuff, still feels like it's kind of like underrated within the grander scope of things. Like he's finally just now getting an honorary Oscar after like not being as celebrated as he should have for you know these decades. Caleb, do you do you like feel like his Peter Weir, especially his early stuff, is kind of like underrated?
2: <laughs> no, I actually consider his his early films to be like these really totally accepted masterpieces. Like um <laughs> Picnic at Hanging Rock is like such a popular film in Australia. It's so yeah. important to the to the uh cinematic psyche of that country that there's actually protests against it, you know? Like where mm. there's like protests against um you know because obviously the the you know the, the sort of central plot is that a group of girls from this Victorian boarding school go missing and then everybody in the town goes like insane because yeah. these these white girls have gone missing in Hanging Rock which in real life isn't a, a sacred site for aboriginal cultures and um and so there were all these protests like against the film because they're like um and I can't remember what the slogan was, but it was something like down with Miranda, you know, or something like this where it was like, you know, the importance of this like missing white girl in this movie compared to the very real, like missing generations of Aboriginal people in Australia uh, that, you know, comparatively never got as much attention as this one, like fictional white girl in this movie, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah. So in Australia, Peter Weir is, Huge, you know, he's like, and so I've always known Peter Weir as like a huge director. So it's weird to me to think of those early movies as like underrated because. But I mean, but I think it's a generational thing too, because like you say, like your first movies of his that you saw were like Master and Commander, and yeah. I was just like, did oh, he direct that? Like, I didn't.
1: Really <laughs> that. Yeah, I
0: think it's totally. You mean you're that's... not writing a book on Master and Commander. You're not <laughs> I mean, prepping that
1: book. Master and Commander is a great movie, but yeah, I think it is that thing of where like I didn't even really like hear his name going around as like a master until I was like getting into like my late twenties and like really diving like deeper into like cinephilia and the more like yeah, reading the books and everything rather than just like what you know people are talking about on imdb message boards or whatever yeah. plus i think the
0: last wave is having a resurgence right now in america because it's like a metaphor for people trying to find kayla's secret letterbox profile
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no i well i had a letterbox profile. i mean i have a letterbox that's secret i had one um, but the problem is when you're like a film programmer or you work for a film distributor, yeah, it gives away too much. I mean, that's it's right. That's pay. right. Listen,
0: I know I know Matt, listen, Matt, co-founder letterbox, listen to this right now. Matt, maybe we need private diary entries. so you can still log yes. your secret movies, <laughs> but you can also log your public movies, you know? Maybe that's a good idea, Matt. Yeah,
2: I think so, because I have actually talked to, about it to other people who are like film programmers and stuff, and it's just like, it, it, it kind of like becomes too easy for people to figure out like what you're going to release based on mm. like stuff you're watching. So
0: yeah. <laughs> We'll make some calls. We'll make yeah. some calls. <music> our guest today was author and filmmaker Kayla Janice. You can find her work linked in our episode notes, go buy the book, go buy the box set along with the links to all of the reviews and lists we mentioned. Be sure to check out our other podcast, Weekend Watchlist, drops on Thursdays each week. Myself, Mitchell, and Mia explore the latest releases in theaters and on streaming.
1: Thanks to our crew, Jack for the facts, Brian Formo for booking and looking after our guests, Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, Sam for the art, big ups to Sam, my beloved co-host Slim for his editing expertise, and to Moniker (laughs) for the theme music. You can always drop us a line at podcast at letterbox.com and please do give us compliments it feels nice next week maybe we'll talk about how i'm verified on twitter mate you know me and me and mitchell both verified get get those eight dollars out buddy and you can you can be just (laughs) like me
0: (laughs) eight dollars a month to be like mitchell the letterbox show is a tape deck production Like if my family's in trouble from dream, they send me a messages. In dreams, and through my body, part of my body will move. If my brother call me,
2: I'll show you a dream. Mm-hmm.
0: Dream is a shadow
2: of something real. This 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 is a tape deck podcast.